I'd like to say good morning to all of you. It's so good to be at Carolina Missionary Baptist Church today. My good friend, Pastor Anthony E. Moore, and uh, just a wonderful friend and brother over these years. I'm just uh, elated to be here with you all today, and uh, I'm grateful for this opportunity. Uh, this, of course, this month is uh, Black History Month. Um, February, of course, is the shortest month of the year. And uh, Carter G. Woodson, many years ago, uh, thought that we needed an opportunity to pretend in, ten, in terms of uh, African-American people and black people, uh, particularly in the United States, to celebrate our history and our culture. So we now in the 21st century try to recognize that our history is not relegated to one month, but every day of our lives. And it also is very much a part of the American story. It is the American story. And so today we help to uh, celebrate that with the uh, Carolina Church. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me uh, to the book of Psalm in the Old Testament, uh, chapter 42. And uh, the context of our text today, or the context of our text is really found in all 11 verses. And I'm reading from the Good News Translation of the Bible. And I only want to read uh, verses one through three for you this morning because of the myth of this passage and the limitation of our time. So that's Psalm chapter 42, verses one through three from the Good News Translation of the Bible. And it simply reads, as a deer longs for a stream of cool water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for you, the living God, when can I go to worship in your presence? Day and night I cry, and tears are my only food. All the time my enemies ask me, where is your God? We take the opportunity to pray with me for a moment this morning. I want to sort of preach from uh, this title of our hanging tag on this text. is simply challenged in a crisis challenged in a crisis. God, we thank you for this opportunity that you've given us to share your word, to speak a word to your people who may be listening wherever they are. God, we pray now that you would take your Holy Spirit and allow your Holy Spirit to sit down in my body, allow the genius of your Holy Spirit to use my mind to speak through my mouth but have your own way right now in my life. I pray now that you would use me, God, in spite of myself. And I pray, God, that now the words of my mouth and the meditation of, of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. For, Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You know, we are living uh, in a world where we are all challenged uh, in a crisis and the crisis of COVID-19, which has caused a pandemic of over 400,000 people to have died in these yet to be United States as Maya Angelou aptly represents this country, her perception of what we are and who we are. And there's a crisis though of the myth of white supremacy and systemic racism being revealed or exposed because COVID for many of us was apocalyptic in a sense because it uncovered what was already there. We, some of us, you know, were so surprised, or some people in some quadrants of our country were surprised when 
when they discovered that this country has been uh, was racist and doing systemic racist things. But many of us have already known that this has been going on since the very inception of this country. But COVID sort of as an apocalyptic moment just revealed or exposed what was already there. So we think about what we are dealing with, this crisis in every nook and cranny of this American culture and society. The crisis of violence is being normalized since the inception of this nation. Even uh, congresspersons want to carry guns into the halls of Congress. I tell you, staying right at us in the face is not just reality TV, which is not reality TV at all. Not fake news that was defined by a fake past president of the pot calling the kettle black, but you and I are challenged in a crisis. Certainly, this is not the first time that the black community nor this nation has faced a crisis. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. knew about crisis and was placed smack in the middle of a crisis in the South. He gave voice to the plight and predicament of black folks in America in his book, A Testament of Hope, the essential writings and speeches of Dr. King. And he said this, and I quote, you know, my friends, there comes a time when you get tired of being trampled by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time, my friends, when people get tired of being plunged across the abyss of humiliation, where they experience the bleakness of nagging despair. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amid the piercing chill of an alpine November. There comes a time. Dr. King went on to give voice to how black folks were feeling, especially in the South. And he said, we are here. This is one of the first speeches he gave at the Montgomery bus boycott. He said, we are here. We are here this evening because we are tired. And I want to say that we are not here advocating violence. We have never done that. I want it to be known throughout Montgomery and throughout this nation that we are Christian people. We believe in the Christian religion. We believe in the teachings of Jesus. The only weapon, he said, that we have in our hands this evening is the weapon of protest. That's all. We have no alternative but to protest. So as we're looking at this text in Psalms 42, it's considered to be a lament by most scholars, which is a passionate expression of grief and sorrow, complaint sprinklings of expressions of trust to God. Also, some scholars suggest that Psalm 42 is connected to the Korahites, in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 31 through 48, the Korahites were a guild of Levitical temple singers commanded by King David to sing and play musical instruments in praise of God. Women and men were a part of these religious celebrations. Women often played drums and dance, as we see in Judges chapter 11, verses 34 through 30, when Jephthah's daughter lamenting before her death. Listen, if you were to read Numbers chapter 16 through 18, you will discover the story of Korah's rebellion and you might conclude 
some connections with our text in Psalm 42. In the book of Numbers, Korah is swallowed up by the ground as punishment for challenging or protesting Moses' authority. But according to 1 Chronicles, Korah's sons eventually reestablished themselves in the temple, and perhaps this sends a message of hope to the Babylonian exiles. Korah seems to function as the paradigm of rebellion, but his descendants become the paradigms or the models of restitution and return. So what do you make of the tears in this text? When we look at these texts in chapter 42, as a deer longs for a stream of cool water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for you, living God, and when I can go and worship in your presence. Day and night, I cry tears. Only, they are only food. And all the time, my enemies ask me, where's your God? Day and night, I cry. And, and tears are my only food. All the time, my enemies ask, where is your God? And in verse five, it says, why am I so sad? Why am I so troubled? I put my hope in God, and once again, I will praise him, my Savior, my God. Think about that for a moment, my friends. Why is it that you are so sad? Why is it that you are lamenting? What crisis do you find yourself in? Why are you crying? What do you make of these tears in this text? Is crying a sign of weakness as most of us or some of us think? Is crying something that only is ascribed to women, which we would say today is sexist? <laughs> Does this song offer you any hope in the midst of the madness you often have to face in a country that has shown time and time again not to care about your black body? Listen, the images of a female deer with heads lowered to drink are frequently found in Judean seals from the 8th and 17th centuries BCE, representing the petitioner in prayer in worship. The image of the doe is the projected soul in the psalmist's personal life. The person's existential core embodied in piety and full, dependent, and vulnerable, like the doe, whose head is stooped as it searches for water in this text. Her soul is cast down. But the problem with this analysis, at least from a womanist perspective and a feminist perspective standpoint, is that often the default position for women in our society is fully dependent in other societies and vulnerable. Perhaps this metaphor packs more transformative, powerful men of privilege. Renita Weems, the brilliant scholar, warns that metaphors matter. They shape the way we view ourselves and another and the world. And also, consequently, readers must claim our rights as readers to differ with authors, and even in the Bible, and especially for the marginalized. We and must decide whether the world's that the author places us in are indeed worth inhabiting. So when we look at this image of this doe, this female deer crying. What do you make of the tears? How do you interpret the tears? 
How are you moved by this text and how are you challenged in this crisis? Well, I will leave you with one thing today, and that is hang on to hope. Hang on to hope. In the midst of your tears, why challenge in the crisis? Hang on to hope. Your tears are not a sign of weakness, but serve as tears of protest to your circumstance, conditions, and it communicates to God. Please hear this. As a legitimate complaint in faith to God, a lament does more than complain. It seeks to change from God with a metaphorical, evocative, and provocative language, moving from a complaint to praise in a process that can bring wholeness and healing to those experiencing brokenness and suffering. It seeks to change. That's what it does. It seeks to change seeks to change from a God who seems to be hiding, from a God who seems to not care, from a God who seems to have forgotten you, to more of an evocative and provocative language, moving from a complaint to praise in the process that can bring wholeness and healing to those experiencing brokenness and suffering. When we look at verse three, the text says, day and night I cry. And tears are my only food. All the time my enemies, enemies ask me, where is your God? You think of this metaphor. You think of this crying day and night. And then this whole thing that, they, that they're searching for water. Seems like this almost a juxtaposition between the tears and the water. It seems like there's a commingling of looking for something that will refresh and crying buckets of tears. Listen, in, in December 1964, representatives of the Mississippi Freedom and Democratic Party toured northern cities seeking support for their, came, their campaign to block the seating of Mississippi's pro-segregation congressmen who had been elected through the disenfranchisement of black voters. See, this has been going on a long time, I tell you. A rally was held in Holland's CME Church on December 20th, 1964, with Malcolm X and Fannie Lou Hamer serving as the chief speakers. Hamer had risen from a sharecropper to a national figure after running for Congress on the biracial ticket which led to her moving testimony before Congress about the brutality she and other African-Americans endured when they tried to vote in Mississippi. Fannie Lou Hamer said, and you can always hear this long sob story. Hamer said, you, you know it takes time. This is what they say. For 300 years, we've given them time, she said. And I've been tired so long. And now I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And we want change. We want change in this society, in America, because you see, we can no longer ignore the facts, getting our children to sing, oh, can, oh say can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hail. What do we have to hail here, she said. The truth is the only thing going to free us. And you know, this whole society is sick 
And this phrase of Fannie Lou Hamer, after being jailed and beaten because she registered to vote, rings in my head even today. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's how you can handle your emotions. You've got to express what you're feeling. Then you have to turn those expressions, that righteous indignation into proactive movement and action that actually brings liberation. So through tears, the psalmist here pours, she pours out her soul. She, she's on the verge of disillusion. One can say that the psalmist has become water because of the frequency and duration day and night of her tears. She, yet tears don't simply function negatively here. Tears seep through the numbness and isolation created by suffering, feeling nothing function as an involuntary defense mechanism to keep trauma at bay. From a, from a pastoral care perspective, tears are part of a relationship behavior. That is a way to express our need for connection, not simply an emotional release. So sometimes we are crying, not simply because we are emotional, but we are crying, we are feeling, and, and we, we understand the trauma, and, it, and it's not negative, it is helping us to deal with the stuff in our lives that is almost unbearable. I'm reminded the brilliant scholar, Joy DeGruy, who penned a fine book entitled Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome. PTSS, and it's a theory that explains the ideology of many of the adaptive survival behaviors in African-American communities throughout the United States. It is a condition that exists as a consequence of, of multi-generational oppression of Africans and their descendants resulting from centuries of chattel slavery. The challenge many have to this theory is, well, it happened so long ago. However, when you consider human beings captured and shipped and sold and beaten and raped and experimented on is the next question for social workers. Did the trauma continue? And according to DeGruy, the answer is absolutely yes. According to DeGruy, post-traumatic slave syndrome is what is driving and a lot of things that we are experiencing today, even though it happened so long ago. Hang on to your hope, despite this, the illusion of real deep change that's required. We've got to hang on to our hope. James Baldwin, doing a radio interview in 1961 with fellow panelists, poet Langston Hughes and playwright Lorraine Hansberry said, to be a Negro in this country and to be relatively conscious is to be in the state of rage almost all the time and in one's work. And part of the rage is this, it, it isn't only what is happening to you, but it's what's happening all around you and all the time in the face of the most extraordinary and criminal indifference, indifference of most white people in this country and their ignorance. Now, since this is so, it is a great temptation to simplify the issues under the illusion that if you simply, if you simplify them enough, people will recognize them. 
I think this illusion is very dangerous because in fact, it isn't the way it works. A complex thing can't be simple. You simply have to try to deal with it in all of its complexities and hope to get that complexity across. We got to hang on to your hope in the midst of the complexities of white supremacy and, and systemic and structural racism and nihilism amongst African-American people and self-negation, self-hatred. We've got to hang on to your hope. Got to hang on to your hope like Abby Lincoln, who was considered a troublemaker because she wore her hair natural and sang about the plight of blacks in her music. Got to hang on to your hope like Nina Simone, who said, I'm, I'm a woman empowered by her blackness and addressing colorism in her music and gender and race issues. She was a part of what we call a resistance culture. You, you've got to hang on to your hope, but more importantly, you got to hang on to your hope in God. Verse five says, why am I so sad? Why am I so troubled? I put my hope in God. And once again, I praise him, my savior and my God. Dude, I want you to hear this, really get it in your spirit. Verse five, it starts, I, I, it says, I am, I am. Why am I so sad? It's asking the question. It's a rhetorical question, but it's asking the question. These are persons in exile. They probably maybe are talking to each other. And they said, why am I so sad? Why am I so troubled? Can you imagine if you're in exile, it, it almost should answer itself, but sometimes you, you wonder how did you get into exile? And of course we've read texts and a lot of times we end up blaming the victim. Like in our, this country, they said, well, how did you get in this situation? You must have created it. You got shot by the police, even though your hands was up, but you must have done something wrong. You got pulled over. You must have been doing something wrong. Why am I so sad? Why am I so troubled? Why will, why will I get in this situation and what will I get myself and how will I get myself out? How would I put my hope in God when I'm so sad? But this text says, why am I so sad? Why am I so troubled? I put my hope in God. And it says once again, which means that I've been here before, but once again, I will praise him. I will submit that he's still God. I will submit that she is still God, my savior and my God. In James Baldwin's book, The Fire Next Time, first part of the book, he, he writes a letter to his nephew about how to handle his condition, his context in which he was born. He helps him to understand the things he must do. And today I want you to understand that in spite of all that we are experiencing, in spite of the crisis of this moment, in spite of the challenge in a crisis, you got to hang on to your hope. You got to hang on to your hope in God. You got to hang on to your hope and know that you have not been forgotten. God is still your defender. People may 
wants you to think, and you may think at times that you have been forgotten. And you may think, of, why am I still suffering? Why am I still dealing with the cruelty of my enemies? Why am I still dealing with insults and things that are crushing me? You may even ask, where are you, God? But you've got to hang on to your hope, and more importantly, hang on to your hope in God. We are challenged in this crisis by so many different things. But the one thing this text pulls me towards is there's hope in God, a God who's never forgotten me, a God who is ever present, a God who I can depend on, the God of my ancestors who brought them through the Middle Passage, a God who brought them through Ma'afa, the great disaster at the hands of the Europeans, a God who brought them through Jim Crow, God who brought them through the Reagan and Bush years, and yes, the past president, a God who's always been with us. You've got to hang on to your hope, but more importantly, you've got to hang on to your hope in God, a God we call Yahweh, a God we call Elohim, a God we call El Shaddai. You've got to hang on to your hope in a God that's omnipresent, a God that is omnipotent. God is omniscient. Hang on to your hope in God. Will you pray with me for a moment? God, I thank you for this word. In the midst, in the challenge, in a crisis, help us to realize that we have hope in you. And that hope in you is what we can hang on and we encourage today, no matter what we are facing, to hang on to our hope in a God who never fails. This is my prayer in your son's name, that Palestinian Jew named Jesus. Amen.